Hello, everyone, and welcome to SCADcast as we launch the second season of On Creativity with Paula Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Matt Nickley. The SCAD community and our entire global family across creative industries and beyond are facing unprecedented times as we band together in response to the coronavirus. These recent days and weeks have been challenging, and we are all learning how to adapt together. As SCAD's virtual spring quarter commences and we dive into season two of On Creativity, the power of learning remains more important than ever. We created this podcast to share ideas, advice, and inspiration from leaders across all creative industries with the wider community. Thank you, as always, for lending us an ear. As artists and creatives, we are poised to express ourselves with greater honesty and compassion than ever before. As today's guest, historian, author, and documentarian Dayton Duncan shared, quote, These are uncharted and difficult times for everyone, but telling stories to one another whether it's in person or online, whether we're in a crowd or sitting alone with a book or a video monitor, has always been how human beings grapple with making sense of the world. It reminds us that we're all in this together. These are precisely the times when your creative energies are most helpful and useful. Tap into them." Unquote. Perhaps you yourself have spent some time these past weeks with Duncan's storytelling, his ongoing partnership with Ken Burns and Florentine Films has made possible some of the finest documentaries and books ever produced, including Baseball, Lewis and Clark, The Journey of America's Core Discovery, The Civil War, The Dust Bowl, and their most recent triumph, Country Music. The extensive work of Duncan and Burns brings the past alive and preserves the wonder and adventure of American history for generations to come. Duncan, at his core, is a master storyteller, a shepherd for the memories of his subjects, a committed truth-teller, and a raconteur of often unbelievable history. The lessons gained by his example are endless, no matter what field you commit yourself to. His dedication to research and his patience to get the story right are invaluable to the creative student and professional. Paula Wallace sat with Duncan to examine how he champions truth in storytelling, and where history meets popular culture. From SCADcast, this is On Creativity, a conversation between Paula Wallace and Dayton Duncan. Well, I'm so proud to be here today with Dayton Duncan, uh, the author of this beautiful book and many others, and also the writer for many of the Ken Burns documentaries. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. Of course. Obviously. So you're like a major historian. Well. Major. <laughs> I'm a hardworking one. I don't, actually, I don't consider myself a historian. You don't? I, I graduated uh, in German literature from the University of Pennsylvania, but I was really more of an English major than German, but I was too lazy to take the required courses when I wanted to change majors. So <laughs> I kept that and then switched. So did you get into it? Like I like I love to read, and so then it kind of came naturally to write a little bit, just because of of loving to read and loving words and loving stories. Yeah, I tell you know uh, with our interns, young people who are interested in what I do, that you know there's two things you got to do to be a writer, mm -hmm. and number one is to be a reader. Yes. I don't know any writers that are not mm -hmm. readers. Um, 
and the second thing is you just if you want to be right you just got to finally learn to sit down and stare at a blank screen or a blank piece of paper and mm -hmm. just keep at it and try to get better mm -hmm. I, I i love writing just the physical act of writing but with the quantity of work that you do well i, I write on i i started off as a reporter yes okay and so, so you're fast speed then. Yeah, you're fast. Is part of my training in terms of getting something out. And, and accuracy. Well, yeah. If you want to be a good reporter, you need to be tell a story that is, first of all, accurate. Uh, second of all, clear. Hmm. And hopefully compelling. And uh, sometimes, when necessary, entertaining. <laughs> but, um, but so I've always, I've always written on a keyboard from an old... Pound it, typewriter. Typewriter. To, to yeah. a computer now. Mm -hmm. Thirty years and numerous Emmys. How did you and Ken Burns become creative collaborators, and to what do you attribute this long and successful partnership? Well, we bumped into each other in the small state of New Hampshire, where he and I both live, and um, he was a struggling filmmaker at the time, and I was uh, at that time a chief of staff for a governor of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. His first assignment was to, as a freelancer, uh, was to come and ask the governor of New Hampshire four questions on behalf of the BBC. And to do that, you had to go through me. We met. He told me then that he was working on a, his first documentary film about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. And I remember thinking as an ex-reporter, boy, that's about as boring a topic as you could probably. I didn't tell him this, but I thought, well, that's about as boring as you could get. And why are you in New Hampshire if you're... <laughs> making a film on the Brooklyn Bridge. But anyway, a year later, he called me up and didn't know if I remembered him. I said, yeah, I remember who you are. And he said, well, I just wanted you to know that the film I made now on the Brooklyn Bridge has been nominated for an Academy Award. Wow. So I sort of figured from that on, I should trust this kid's instincts uh, <laughs> a little bit. And then we became friends. I was working on books. He was working on more films. He'd invite me in to look at the films he was making. I'd invite him to read books that I was writing, and uh, he got interested in some topics that I was passionate about and sort of pulled me into making films with him. So that was 30-some years ago, and I produced, I generally produce the films that I write and write the films I produce. It makes the meetings between producer and uh, writer a lot quicker. Um, but it's been the greatest adventure of, of my life, uh, you know. Um, in many respects, I, I think it's like um, I have the best job that I could, I, that I personally could could have. You know, it's like a self-directed uh, graduate course in a topic of your own choosing. So I then, as the writer and as the producer, go out and research everything I can, read everything I can about that topic, um, meet the people who know the most about it. Um, interview them uh, and try to see if we should interview them on camera as well. As a producer, I go to the places where the history occurred. Mm. Uh, you know, so my job doing national parks was to go to all the national parks and then return there with the film crew and try to get the best shots, interview the people that need to be interviewed, um, and then come back to do what I really am at heart, which is a writer. Um, and work at 
putting all that stuff together, the research, the interviews, and other things to write a documentary script that uh, I then get to turn over to my best friend, who's the best documentary filmmaker in America, and work with this incredibly talented group of people that we've collected there in the little town of Walpole, New Hampshire, and take this thing that's on a page and try to make it into a, a film. So I've been waiting for 30 years for somebody to come up and tap me on the shoulder and say, uh, Mr. Duncan, there's been this huge mistake. You know, you're supposed to be doing this. And I also, uh, I shouldn't say this publicly, you know, I, I, you know I'm always uh, surprised that I get paid to do what I do. So uh, it's been a perfect job for me. What Ken and I think have in common are a couple of things. First of all, uh, when we learned that each of us uh, at that time with our young families were uh, reading the Declaration of Independence aloud to our kids on what to us is the holy day of, uh, of the year for America, which is the 4th of July, we knew we shared a passion for this grand experiment in democracy that uh, is still going on yes. in our nation on this continent. And uh, we're both believers in uh, not just a passion for history, but in telling it as old-fashioned, basically, narrative storytellers. That's how we've always communicated as a species, you know. Could be just telling a story around a campfire. Yes. You know, or reciting, somebody reciting Homer. Mm -hmm. Or if there was a person named Omer, him mm -hmm. reciting it to mm -hmm. people as they're, they're listening. And mm -hmm. it's evolved to both book writing for me and, uh, and for filmmaking. But we believe in that power of old-fashioned storytelling to try to, to tell history. That's mm -hmm. how you, uh, I think, how people remember it, not as disparate facts and dates and names, mm -hmm. but in a story. And uh, that's the challenge for me as a writer in each film is try to condense it down and, and make it into a story that makes sense, is accurate as an old reporter. <laughs> it's got to be accurate. It needs to be clear. Got some good quotes in there, too. And it needs to move along. You've got good quotes. Yeah, I mean, the, our style, you know, there are lots of ways people can make documentaries. We don't claim that ours is the only way to do it. It's just the way that we do it. And uh, it's the way that it makes what's sense. That? So that, what's that? Well, it's to tell it as a story, but it's a mix of the words are important of the narration that I write. Equally important to that are the words of the people whose history we're telling, letters, journals, mm -hmm. newspaper, clipping things uh, that help bring it alive and to match that with visual images mm -hmm. that help, that aren't just sort of, attached, you know, randomly or just attached mechanically, but that help, uh, help it uh, come alive for you. Mm -hmm. And to match that with music yes. that I consider sort of the emotional metronome in all of the films that we make. It's very important. All of those things are equally important to it. As a writer, I appreciate Ken's commitment to the written word, but that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, but each shot is important. How you treat each shot is important. How you pace is important. What music might be underlying it is important. 
there is no unimportant part of it. There is no unimportant part. Yeah. Uh, and so um, it's just been, you know, he and I are both committed to that process and um, and we love it. Mm -hmm. You know, each topic's a new discovery for us. We, we also, I think, don't try to start a film knowing what the story is and then start, sort of just go out to collect the things that are going to support our whatever our preconception Your, might be. Mm -hmm. For us, it's, the, it's going out and the discovery of that topic and meeting the people and letting them talk to us, mm -hmm. not to fill a hole on a script, but to help us create a script. Mm -hmm. And that discovery is what gets our first juices going. And then mm -hmm. just that hard work of winnowing it down, polishing That's it, crafting so it. And we put the film together and then we take it apart. We put it together and we take it apart. We do that That's why about, it takes eight years. Yeah, right. <laughs> when no one's ever accused us of either being fast or short uh, in, the, in the films that we've made. No, but the pacing is perfect. You know, oh, thank you. It's, um, you convey so much uh, emotion and knowledge. I mean, really, you're educators in what you're doing. Um, and, and you're learning at the same time, yeah. as you're saying, because you're keeping an open mind yeah. and seeing what is actually presented to you and what stories you can discover. Yeah, I mean, while we don't necessarily consider ourselves teachers or, or educators, are. We, we are students ourselves. Yes. But it's as if we're coming back to say, wow, listen to this. This is what we've learned. And this is how we are going to tell you the story. And we're very, very gratified that over the years, the films that we make, which we don't consider the final word on the topic, we consider them as the introductory word to millions, tens of millions of, of people about a topic that will inspire or, or prompt them mm -hmm. to want to go learn more about the top, topic themselves, to read other books mm -hmm. about it, mm -hmm. to go to the places where that history occurred mm -hmm. And we're also gratified that in, in schoolrooms across America on, on any given day, some, a number of teachers are using our films to help students to draw them into this grand exploration of who we are as Americans. Mm -hmm. Wow, what an impact. What an impact on people's lives. Well, it's, um, thank you for saying that. I mean, we... we uh, we love getting letters from people about um, being moved by what what we've done and how that might have prompted them with national parks that load up their family and want Actually, to go out go. to to that and that the park service said attendance mm -hmm. went up and most recently with country music that um, people who thought they didn't like country music decided well maybe there's something there to like. Well, you know, I learned a lot in your in your book and, and in seeing um, the country music um, documentary that I'm from Atlanta, and as a native Atlantan, I didn't know that the first country music recording was made in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, the... Uh, we think know, of Nashville. Right. <laughs> and and part, of our, part of the story that we tell is that uh, ultimately, Nashville became sort of the epicenter, though not the only place no. where country music uh, was or still is being created, but it became the, the focal point. But it wasn't 
necessarily going to be that way. It could have been Atlanta. It could have been Chicago. It could have been mm-hmm. Dallas. It could have been a lot of places. But for a variety of reasons, as we unspool our story, mm-hmm. you start to learn, oh, they had the Grand Ole Opry, and then, mm-hmm. oh, they opened some recording studios. And, and then Meridian, and then, Mississippi. And, and then, yeah, <laughs> there's all those, all those places were, were part of the canvas that, uh, mm-hmm. that we try to paint. Mm-hmm. But... Um, so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, uh, uh, this was a different uh, story for me from the others I've done on Lewis and Clark and the Mark Twain and the Dust Bowl and the first car trip across the United States, the West, in the sense that this was about music. Music's always been important both to me and to Ken mm-hmm. to underlie our storytelling. Mm-hmm. Usually it's instrumental music. As I said, it's an emotional metronome for for me. Mm-hmm. I listen to it as I'm writing sometimes, and um, but this was about music. Yes, and it's about a music that not always, but most often, is a music that's got words to it that it's, itself is telling us telling a, story. a story. So the challenge mm-hmm. for us on this one, we, this is what we have. Every every film we do has presents different challenges. And we love, that's what keeps us going. We're, mm-hmm. You know, how do you solve this? Mm-hmm. So how do we do this story where someone is talking, a narrator reading the script I wrote, or an interviewee is talking, mm-hmm. or you're hearing the voice from the past of a letter or something from, uh, from somebody uh, from that moment in history. There's usually somebody talking, and if there's music underneath that, that is also, there's being sung, my nightmare for seven of the eight years <laughs> in the middle of the night, my two o'clock wake-up calls, as I call them, um, one of them was it'd be like getting into a crowd, uh, an elevator with somebody and carrying on the conversation while uh, while uh, Hank Williams is trying to sing a song to you. you know, it, it could be cacophony. And so we had to work on that, and our editors did, a, I think, just a marvelous job of spacing things out. I tried to write a little differently to create those moments as well but to let the music itself come forward and let it take over mm-hmm. when I when we did Mark Twain what I had to learn is I had to write less and let Mark Twain <laughs> speak more because he's better at it than I am uh, and in this one we had to do things where we had to step back and let the music come to the fore so you said that a generation has to pass before you can really appropriately assess and tell some of these stories and yeah. maybe pick out the most important parts. Um, so what are you looking at? As you're telling one of these stories, are you finding some of the other stories that you want to invest your time in? Yeah, I mean, we um, when I'm writing a script, I write the first drafts are at least twice as long as I know it's ultimately going to be. Mm-hmm. Writing is not a collaborative exercise. It's a very solo Solitary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's going to become, in making a film, I learned, it's going to become this collaborative exercise. Mm-hmm. And I wanted all the people, Ken and the other people uh, involved in it, to start that process. Some of them, that's all they're going to know about the topic are basically what's exists in the script but we're going to make make tough decisions about you know to try to squeeze it down into the time limits that we have Mm -hmm. in a documentary film we're going to have to get rid of a lot of stuff 
either it's details we got to get rid it's of so whole stories. I know. Well, you know, it is heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, Ken, so Ken always when I, when I start to cry in the editing room, uh, uh, or threaten to cry <laughs> in the editing room as the scene drops to the floor, Ken will pat me on the back and said, "Well, don't worry, Dayton. That that could be in the companion book." So I, one of the things I love, you do have these great books. Yeah, yes, is that so. we generally put out a companion book as we did with um, country music, and that includes a lot of the stories that you know we couldn't fit into the film and mm -hmm. more details than we mm -hmm. could, could I fit love into that the film. you have the handwritten lyrics yeah. or typed you know kind of vintage typed lyrics that you can see where some of the lines were yeah. marked out you know well that's part of the great thing about uh, that I I love about the filmmaking part of it um, which is when it's working well the images that are chosen the way that they're edited, the addition of the music, you know, takes these things that once existed as words on a page and transform it magically into something that has a vibration that as good a writer as I th might sometimes think I am, can never really do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that additional stuff. So mm -hmm. we have very talented people spend a lot of time going out finding uh, photographs, finding footage, uh, finding those things that can help bring this to life. Mm -hmm. We're very, you know, we're very proud of that too. We, in the film and in the book for country music, there's a lot of uh, images that nobody had ever seen before. You know, people bring them out, shoe boxes full of stuff, and we have somebody wow. just go through them, mm -hmm. find it, or, the Cash yeah, family gave us some images. home movies that they had that some of the daughters had never even seen. And we said, oh, if we can just borrow those, we'll transfer them into mm -hmm. digital stuff and we'll give you the mm -hmm. not only the original, but we'll give you that back. And if we can use it in our film. And there, here are these, this footage of young Johnny Cash in a hotel room with a young Elvis Presley goofing around or, you know, Roseanne Cash at this age with her mama and, and daddy mm -hmm. uh, at a picnic. And that just adds, you know, it adds so oh, much more. It's that, invaluable. That you, I can describe that to you here, but it's nothing compared to once you see it actually happening yeah. and you hear the music and you hear the narration. Of all your books and documentaries, is uh, Lewis and Clark your favorite? Well... Lewis and Clark has been part of my bloodstream for yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, why is almost this, forty years now? Yeah, I read why is a book. So I read a book of a condensed version of their journals mm. back in the late seventies, mm. and I was just captivated by it. Mm -hmm. I was just captivated by the voice of the people traveling across the first American citizens to cross the continent. I was captivated by the adventure of it. I was captivated by the moment in history that it represented of this new nation that was bound on the East Coast as it's about to stride across the continent for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was this moment in time and, and it fascinated me. And I wrote a magazine article about, I suggested to a magazine editor that why don't I go out along the trail and I'll write mm -hmm. about what Lewis and Clark would have I'll, I'll be I'll be Lewis and Clark, a hundred almost two hundred mm -hmm. years later, mm -hmm. and I'm going to write about what I the people I meet and the things that I see, and mm -hmm. also compare that to that history, and then that 
turned into my first book. Um, and then since then, um, a year hasn't gone by that I haven't gone back out somewhere along the trail. When Ken read that book, he said, we've got to make a documentary film hmm. on that. So back I went, <laughs> you know, uh, with the film crew and with him and I got to show my best friend uh, the first time he saw a buffalo herd coming over a rise in South Dakota the first time he was in South Dakota and see his eyes get the size of saucers yes. or to take him to the great falls of the Missouri River in Montana the first time he was in Mon Montana. Um, and uh, so it's, I've now written three books, the, you know, my first book and a companion book to the film we made and then a book of essays during the bicentennial. So, so you know, I don't know if I, I'm not going to say Clark. they're my favorite one, but uh, <laughs> but it's 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 deeper, it's deeper in my heart and deeper in my bloodstream. But uh, I'm so lucky because uh, you know I feel that way about all the films and all the books hmm. I've I've written. They've never been work. And they've never been assignments to me. They've either been of my choosing or once they were suggested, I latched on to them and said, tell me more. I want to learn as much as I can about that. And then I want to tell people what I learned. Mm -hmm. So you're working on uh, Hemingway now. Yes. Uh, well, Florentine Films is. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not uh, involved in that directly. Uh, I'm at the moment writing a uh, film biography that Kendall will direct. Uh, on the life of Benjamin Franklin. Oh. And uh, he's kind of interesting. Yes. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Benjamin he's Franklin. A, he's, a, he's a cat. So you're following his steps, too? Well, uh, boy. Um, he traveled. He spent a lot of time in Paris. Yes, he spent a lot of time stuff, in Paris. So I don't think, uh, I'm not producing that, I'm just writing it. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I'll actually be going there. I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania when I was. Uh, in college, so I, I got to know Ben a little bit there. He's the founder of yes. that, that college in the 1740s and um, knew Philadelphia pretty well. So what's but something I, that most people don't know about Benjamin Franklin? Oh, I think there's so much. Um, you know, if they were giving a Nobel Prize in the mid-18th century, his work on the unified theory of what electricity is. He gave, he gave us the, the terms positive, negative, negative. of battery, mm -hmm. of conductor. Mm -hmm. He was the first to say, I think that lightning is probably electricity. And he went out and, and proved it. But he was so committed to the, what he would call the common good that that wasn't the science was interesting to his mind. He invented bifocals and a stove yes. and uh, lots of other things. Uh, a nice uh, musical instrument called the harmonica, which is like rubbing your finger around a I wine glass. That. And he saw that and he goes, well, we could do that better. And he turned the cups sideways and put them all on a tread, you know, on a, with a little treadle thing that would spin it. And then you could sit there and put your fingers on different parts. And Mozart and uh, Beethoven, you know, composed music for this Well, that's definitely something I did not know. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so the, the, I think it's the, it's not just the many angles to, to mm -hmm. him that's interesting to me, it's the depth of, of those things. 
And the other thing that I'm particularly drawn to at the moment as I'm writing it, here's, the, here's one of our greatest revolutionaries. His son, his illegitimate son, but who he brought into the household when he, when he got married, um, became the royal governor of New Jersey. And at the time of the revolution, stayed loyal to the king and eventually was imprisoned as he was the most notorious loyalist. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, it's this great reminder to us that the Revolutionary War, we think it was just these people marching and stuff like that. It was a civil war. And it was family. a civil war. Within families. Even more civil war-ish than our civil war, which really was just armies fighting each other, mm -hmm. north versus south. Mm -hmm. But in the United, what became the United States in those colonies, in every colony, in every town, and in many families, they were splitting sides. Mm -hmm. And it was horrendous uh, and tragic. And here we have this great founding father. No one suffered a greater tragedy than his family. Exactly. In the sense of, of their breaking up. So, you know, I, I think that that's going to be a thing that, uh, that most people, I certainly didn't, hadn't focused on that. And uh, it's something I really hope that we can bring out in the film that we make on it. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Yeah. There's a lot more to know about all these subjects. There's things to know about everything. I mean, you know, there's an endless, endless storehouse of, of stories to tell. Well, I'm so glad you're in Savannah for part of the year, and hopefully we can call on you. Maybe you'll like, speak to a class every now and then. Oh, I'd love to. You know, we have uh, people who work for us, uh, uh, an editor, uh, assistant editor now, started off as an intern with us up in New Hampshire, and then Brian. he was, uh, Brian Lee's his name, and he, then we, he was one of the ones who was really good, and an opening came up, and so he became an apprentice editor. Yay, Brian! Of course, on, uh, uh, on country music, and now he's been promoted to assistant editor um, on Hemingway. But um, So you do very good work here of, of preparing people for creative jobs, and you're located in this enchanting city that my wife Diane and I have fallen in love with, particularly in the wintertime, where <laughs> it was four below zero at home in New Hampshire yesterday, and we were glad that we were looking at that from Savannah, and even though it was chilly here, it was nothing compared to that. It's a it's a beautiful city. It's a walking city. You can get out and yeah. walk year round and um, really find you know friendly people from all over the yeah. world. Yeah, it's a it's a hidden gem. Maybe it's not so hidden anymore. But, uh, <laughs> well, we're glad you're here too. Well, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, for me, working on on country music because music is part of my life. You know, I played piano as a kid growing up, sang in a church choir for 12 years and in the school chorus, saxophone in the band, played in a folk singing group, uh, the New Frontier Four. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were very big in Indianola, Iowa <laughs> for a couple of years in the mid-60s, sang all the great folk songs, and I became a, my best friend from there. Uh, I sort of my relationship to country music would make a good country music song. Yeah. We were in love. We broke up. <laughs> we reconciled. 
had a tempestuous relationship for a while, and then we finally settled. Was it settled Saturday down. night and Sunday morning? It's Saturday night and Sunday morning. Per, <laughs> That's you know, country precisely. music. That is that is that that is the story of country music. But I, I, I what I learned in doing this and in meeting some great artists. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things that this working on this project for me was so special. It's like we it interviewed so we interviewed a hundred and one people on camera. Mm -hmm. And unlike in most of the films that we've done, which rely most heavily on historians yes. to help us tell the story, we ha I had a list as a producer of people that I thought, well, we'll get to these people. But we started with some, um, from, with some aging uh, country stars to try like to get Merle them. Merle Haggard. And yeah, and one of them was Merle Haggard, who I had the great honor of, mm -hmm. of interviewing about a year before he died. Um, and we decided after a while that we, we these, these artists knew the story of their art as well as historians did, but also from a little different angle in that they create it themselves. And yes. so the, the way that they, that they told those stories brought to it not an arm's length distance, mm -hmm. uh, but a, a personal uh, passion to it. And I think that made the film, you know, better. Very warm, very yeah. personal, and and that um, sometimes country music had been disrespected. Absolutely. And uh, the performers were called hillbillies and so forth. And um, just to bring forth that pride in the the roots and the heritage of country music and, and also talk about how widespread the geographic influence yes. um, and not. base is for country music. Tell us about the connection between railroads and insurance companies and country music. <laughs> I found that interesting. Well, that's a great story too of the of the radio station WSM in the early days of radio. In the early days of radio, they were just trying to figure out what do you do with this <laughs> medium and they're usually owned by a company. And but they needed to fill time and so they said, "Well, let's play live music and they'd bring local bring in musicians, volunteers. you know, pay nothing. Yes. But then those musicians thought, saw this as an opportunity for them while they're doing to get heard by other people and to maybe say, well, you know, I'll be out in South Briar on Wednesday and hope you all <laughs> come out to, you know, to see us at that time. So Plug it was their a good paid performance. But in Nashville, Tennessee, an insurance company decided this is a great way for us to reach the people who might be buying our products. And they created a, a radio station, and one of those shows became known as the Grand Ole Opry. And it was so popular. We, had, You know, one of the people that I interviewed was a salesman for that company, the uh, insurance company. They would go to neighborhoods and they would listen to, on Saturday nights to find those places that were listening to that. Mm -hmm. And they'd make sure they came and knocked on the door mm -hmm. at the start of the week and introduce themselves. I'm from WSM and we're here from National Life. I don't know. We, we the sponsors of the Grand Ole Opry. Maybe they said, well, come on in. Come on you in. Know? <laughs> and it was a great uh, door opener uh, for them. So mm -hmm. that mix of, of commerce... Yes. And art is yeah. also part of the story and a very interesting one that we develop in our film and, and in the book. Yes. Sometimes the commerce is, and the art are sort of 
you know, creating a tension, mm -hmm. but it's the commerce that makes that made it possible mm -hmm. for the Carter family. Yes. Instead of just being known around Macy's Spring, Virginia, they were heard everywhere over this border blaster station and coming out of Mexico that could blast their signal all across Incredible. the United States to promote this quack doctor. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> so this quack doctor who had, you know, wait for it. He was, has a way to help aging men deal with, um, how shall I say it? Uh, you know, to improve their sexual prowess, right? <laughs> it wasn't a purple pill. It was to implant uh, goat testicles into them. Did the, he actually do that? He did. And he made a lot of money on it. Wow. But he was a pioneer of using this new technology of radio and used the, the power of the, of the popularity of mm -hmm. the, the Carter family so that people could hear it. And then, they, then he'd you know, break in and say, you know, oh, come on down way. to Del Rio, Texas. <laughs> you know, all you old guys who are worried about things. And made a, just made a, made a ton of money on it. When you think about the popularity of people sitting around the radio and, and country music being primarily purveyed on the radio and the popularity today of podcasts and audiobooks. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a... Listening. Yeah. You know, we started this by on just one premise, this project, which is this is a uniquely American art form. Yes. It's uniquely American in that it started here. It was this multicultural. And like, and like us as Americans, there's no pure American. We're all mongrels and we're all the mix of stuff. And our culture is that way too. And this music is that too. And it is an art. You know, uh, it is the, it takes music, which is this art of the invisible that you, don't it sort of music can bypass your brain and go right to your heart yes it combines that with the best of us in literature which is poetry which okay. also streamlines things down and you match a good lyric which is poetry mm. at its best to some music at its best yeah the economy and you've got of a, words you've got a delivery and the evocative system. melody yeah. I mean, together. It's a power that you don't mm -hmm. believe and that you that's just beyond description. You have to hear it to, you know, to really get it. Mm -hmm. But it, that is art. It is. And these uh, and a lot of it was created by folks who came from the lowest rung of the economic ladder of hardship beyond belief uh, for whom music was both an escape you know, in the terms of the creativity of it, yes. but it also was an escape from their, from their poverty. Yes. And that's a great American story, uh, too, which we try to try to tell. And I was always just, you know, Dolly Parton, you know, her parents, when she was born, they paid the doctor who delivered her with a sack of corn flour. Mm -hmm. They didn't have electricity. They didn't, you know, they had a battery-powered radio. And when she, as a young woman, young girl actually, 
started appearing on a Knoxville television station. Her family couldn't watch it back there in the foothills of the Great Smokies because they didn't have a television. You know, I mean, like I say, you cannot make this stuff up. I mean, it's just, it is so rich and sometimes almost unbelievable. Those are the stories that it's I love to tell. nonfiction. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's, we are... We we are uh, you know real it, stories. Yeah, we're we're we are the real reality television. Real reality. Yeah, television. because it's the it's the it's the real real stuff. Real and when it's really working, mm-hmm. um, it's beautiful. It can yeah it can uh, you know you hope it can achieve something that's that's greater than the sum of its, of its parts, mm-hmm. both in the mm-hmm. storytelling and the information that it's delivering. And sometimes in the emotional package that it can deliver to the heart of somebody and, mm-hmm. and prompt them to think of the world differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nothing better than that. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you've told the stories of a lot of people who heretofore have been, the stories have been untold. So yeah. thank you. Oh, thank you. Amazing. Thanks. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dayton Duncan. Consider what stories you're an expert on. Take 20 minutes, write them down, explore their possibilities. It could be the history of your family, a life-changing trip or experience, a little-known story about your hometown. Dive into the freedom about writing what you know better than anyone else. And, if you're comfortable doing so, share that story with your community. Amplify your story and champion the stories of others. This has been On Creativity, a production of SCADcast. Executive produced by SCAD president and founder Paula Wallace, with original music by SCAD alumnus George Lovett. From all of us at SCAD, I wish you the best of health and safety wherever you are in the world. Be sure to subscribe for instant access to our ongoing creative content, and we'll see you next time.